from Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. In 1999, Fred Harris went away to prison on a 96-year sentence for cocaine possession. Well, technically, it was for more than that. What were you convicted on? Um, drug charges. Okay. A guy that I was dealing with, he had caught a case, and I guess he had to do a deal sitting up three people or more. Oh. And um, he did what you call a reverse thing, so the cops took the dope out of property and gave it to him and sold it to me and busted me in the act of buying from them. Oh, so you weren't even selling anything. I wasn't even selling any drugs. See, Fred wasn't serving almost a century just for this sting. Due to what's called a habitual offender statute, Colorado was able to combine that charge with two previous charges on his record for selling weed, both from the early 90s. On each charge, he could be sentenced up to 25 years. But prosecutors argued to almost quadruple that, stacking the sentences up to make a lifetime. I, I mean, do you remember how they justified 96 years? I think at that time it was like the war on drugs and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the society and uh, the way people viewed drugs, marijuana and stuff like that. I think that had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were locking everybody up. And it happened most often to black men like Fred. According to the Drug Policy Alliance, black people make up a little more than 10% of the U.S. population, but 40% of the people in prison on drug charges are black. And they're more likely to serve longer sentences for drug crimes than any other group. You know, you want to have hope and try to go to court and do the best you can in court. And unfortunately, I didn't have any... uh, a paid lawyer had a public defender. Oh, I see. So, you know, and it was kind of hard. You know, I was in Arapahoe County almost a year, year and a half, fighting the case. Yeah. And he lost, which meant that he was looking at spending the rest of his natural life behind bars, leaving behind his children, including his 17-year-old son, Arzell, another casualty of the war on drugs. So, like, for me, when I found that out, man, my heart just, like, fell in my stomach. I kind of just, like, consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. Remember, that was in 1999. Fred wasn't dead. The world just kept turning while he was on the inside. And something big happened in 2012, more than a decade later. Colorado voters said yes to all three proposed amendments to the state constitution. The most contentious issue was whether to legalize marijuana for recreational use by adults. That passed. If you saw the news at the time, from the comfort of your own home, it probably felt like a momentous change, like a big turning point in history. But every day Fred woke up in prison after legalization was a day he wondered what change. You know, you're inside... And to some degree, you can see legal cannabis starting to, like, unfold, right? Right. Like, you're aware that people can go to stores and buy it. How does that make you feel? <laughs> wow, I just felt like, you know, it was unfair. Yeah. You know, you, f- you feel like it's unfair. I mean, it's, it's legalized now. And I'm wondering, why aren't they seeing it? You know? Mm-hmm. Seeing what, you know, I'm in here for, for cannabis. And many, many others, like Fred, 
watched and waited, serving time for cannabis while Colorado's legal weed industry blossomed into a $2 billion business. And for folks like him, it wasn't like a switch flipped and they just got out of prison. Even with help from high-profile celebrities and the governor himself, Fred had a hard fight ahead of him. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Today's episode takes place in Colorado, otherwise known as the On Something World Headquarters. Now, Colorado gets a lot of pats on the back for firsts. First state to legalize recreational cannabis in 2012. First state to earmark some of the taxes for education. First state to create a cannabis regulatory system. But it's pretty late to the game when it comes to social equity. Fred is an unfortunate example. When voters legalized in 2012, they didn't agree to do anything about people like him who were still serving cannabis sentences. In fact, you couldn't even participate in the legal industry if you had a felony conviction on your record, cannabis or otherwise. The result? Today, Colorado's cannabis industry is almost entirely white, with less than 10% of pot businesses owned by people of color, according to state data. How did you get into it at first? Um, I got involved with uh, Rastafari. So I was uh, influenced by the culture. You know, and at that time, we were actually asking for marijuana to be legalized. Yeah. If you remember, Petey Tashi had the song out, uh, Legalize It. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of how I got into that, you know, mm-hmm. from the from the Rastafarian and the, the culture and, you know, it's being around that. When it finally was legalized, at least in Colorado, Fred did feel some hope that maybe he would get out soon. But by then, prison had put an enormous amount of pressure on what was already a strained relationship with his son, Arzell Lewis. Growing up, I always had these other kids being around their dad. I used to be jealous mm-hmm. all the time. It was hard, but Arzell says he accepted on some level that he'd never see his dad again. Even after legalization, he didn't think it was possible to get him out of prison. I also had to focus on doing what I was doing. I was trying to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was heartless, because it hurt every day. You know, you can't just forget about those things, but at the end of the day, like, to get through those things, you kind of got to be like, that was like my mind state. Yeah. From hearing Arzell talk about his life, role models were always really important to him. People who were larger than life and did larger than life things. Role models like NBA players who inspired him to try out for the NBA himself at 23. And even though he didn't get in, he went on to play professional basketball internationally. And he also started coaching kids, finally getting his chance to be a role model himself. Basketball literally taught me life. Like if I didn't have it, I probably I'd be dead or in jail for sure. 
Wow. Just because of my personality, um, I'm always going to lead the pack. And so if I was, you know, if I was gangbanging or selling drugs, I would have been the biggest drug dealer Colorado ever seen. And not because, I'm not saying that in the, I'm not trying to glorify that. I'm trying to, I'm literally like proud of myself that like I am where I am today. And basketball would pave the way for everything he does now. He's the founder of Sweet Feet, a nonprofit that gives away thousands of brand new shoes to kids, along with mentorship. According to their website, they've given away just over 11,000 pairs in the last two years. And he's also the founder of Become a Champion magazine, BAC for short. It's a local Denver magazine all about, you guessed it, role models, mostly in sports. He started it in 2000 when he was fresh out of college, and then he turned it into a business in 2016. Around that time, he also tried to get into the legal weed industry himself. He looked at it as a kind of poetic justice. He could make money selling the stuff that put his father away for life. But he'd have to find himself an established cannabis business to partner with, And so out he went to court Colorado's cannabis CEOs. And keep in mind, like I said earlier, most of the people in charge are white. And a lot of the time, it became evident really quickly that these guys didn't look at Arzell and see an equal. Mike, I'll give you an example. So one time we had a meeting. We go in. My assistant, she was white. We walk into a meeting, and um, the guy... At the other business, he had only met me through email. So he was, like, impressed with our magazine and just, like, everything we're doing in the community. So when we met him, he's like, oh, we were like, hey, nice to meet you. He's like, nice to meet you guys. Where's Arzell? And I... Uh. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when... I mean, I was hurt. I was more hurt than upset. I was like, damn, that's messed up. And the girl that was with me, she just turned red. She was like, oh, my God. Like She was embarrassed for him. So I literally was so mad that I walked out, but then as I, right when I walked out, I turned right back around, came back in, shook his hand, and said, hey, I brought Arzell this time. <laughs> nice save. <laughs> now, he was so embarrassed that, like, you know, he kind of was... And now, he wasn't racist. It was just, like, that's when I realized a lot of people are ignorant. Yeah. Not ignorant either. They're sheltered. Yeah. And so now I look at every opportunity as a learning lesson. So it's an opportunity for me to... Not school somebody, but, you know, give them some insight. Yeah. Because you can, like, people ask, like, how come you guys say the N-word? And I'll be like, well, they're like, but they'll say it with a hard E-R. Why is that relevant to starting a business? (laughs) Like. But this is the conversations that we'll have in these meetings. Oh, what? So why does he even have to have these meetings? Well, starting up a weed business is expensive, least of all because it's not really an option to take out a loan from a bank. It is more realistic to partner with someone who is already established. But no matter how many meetings he had with potential partners, they never seemed to go anywhere. After a certain point, Arzell felt like there was no way into the cannabis industry, at least not for him. It felt like, you know, where's Waldo? But, like, <laughs> there's no Waldo on the on the picture. <laughs> like, you could keep looking. Like, I've been looking. I searched the whole, every inch of this picture. I can't Waldo's find actually on vacation. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Waldo's under, underneath the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Once again, it felt like legalization had changed nothing, at least not for Arzell or his family. He wrote off the cannabis business for a while, focusing his time on his other businesses, like BAC Magazine, where he was heavily involved, even writing most of the articles himself, interviewing NBA players, hip-hop artists, and others. Like he got a chance to interview Kobe Bryant in 2016, the last time he would end up playing in Denver. For Arzell, it was a big deal, a cover story, and it didn't go unnoticed. One day he got a call out of the blue from a guy who saw it and wanted to nab his own BAC cover story. And uh, he's like, you the owner of BAC Magazine? And I'm like, yeah, who's this? He's like, LeVar Ball, baby! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so if you don't know who LeVar Ball is, he's an all-around controversial guy. He's the father of three professional basketball players, LiAngelo, LaMelo, and Lonzo Ball. LeVar is probably most well-known for having a big mouth, though. This is LeVar on ESPN that year, arguing that despite only having played one year of college basketball, he could beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. We, we talk about the GOAT here, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, and you running your mouth talking about you going to beat him one-on-one. Why would you say something so blasphemous? In my heyday, blasphemous. he would need help. Really? He too really? small. Five-on-five five game, he good. One-on-one, I'm undefeated. Never lost. Will you stop it? Don't Never lost one-on-one. That don't make any sense. LeVar is also infamous for making sexist remarks to female sports journalists and refs and for arguing with Donald Trump on Twitter. Look, for better or for worse, the guy says what's on his mind. So in case you hadn't heard of him before, that is who called Arzell one day out of the blue. I'm like, okay, well, how can I help you? He's like, you need to put my boys on the cover of your magazine with the real Splash Brothers across the top. And I was like, do you know who that is? That's Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. He's like, but they ain't biological brothers. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. So literally after that, I just fell in love with him because he reminded me of, like my uncles, you know, even with him saying he could beat Michael Jordan, that's something like your uncles would say. They're like, oh, man, I'll not cash this. I'll not cash this Clay out. They're lying, but they just trying to... They're trying to build you up. Yeah, yeah. They're like, if I did that, you could do it. Yeah. So in 2017, Arzell goes to meet LeVar to feature his sons on the cover of BAC. So when I first met him, you know, three years ago, none of the boys were in the NBA. Um, So when I got to his house, I really wanted to know if he could beat Michael Jordan. But then, my, you know, my dad called from prison. So he was like, who's that? I was like, man, that was my dad. He's like, what's your dad in prison for? I was like, man, he served 96 years for cannabis. And he was like, you know, he was heartbroken. He was like, dang, that's crazy. So he was like, man, it's my job to get my three boys into the NBA. And it's your job to get your dad out of prison. And he was like, you know, you getting your dad out of prison is um, bigger than me getting my boys, all three of my boys into the NBA. So then after that, he was just instrumental in like helping, you know, get my dad out. At that time, Getting his dad out of prison seemed impossible. Kind of like believing that you could beat the greatest basketball player of all time, one-on-one. Maybe Arzell just needed someone who could make insurmountable things seem achievable through sheer self-confidence. Like a role model of his very own, 
just LeVar's power, you know, he had power. He was like, I'm going to call the governor myself. Who is this? Who is the governor? <laughs> he started Googling all kind of stuff, but that's just the type of personality he is. Yeah. You know? And that was kind of hard to argue with, huh? It's like, yeah, why wouldn't I do this? Yeah, well, you know, when then when you see, like, if there's daylight, well, as an athlete, you like, if I get a little crease, a yeah. little seam, I can run through that. Okay, so let's rewind a bit. Marijuana was legalized by Colorado's voters in 2012 under Governor John Hickenlooper, who, let's just say, didn't vote for it himself, despite overseeing the creation of a cannabis regulatory system that would go on to be a model for other states, Hickenlooper saw himself as simply carrying out the will of the people. No more, no less. He now serves as one of Colorado's two U.S. senators. By the time Arzell had this fire lit under him in 2017, Hickenlooper was term limited and leaving office. The governor-elect, Jared Polis was a Democratic congressman known for his support of legalization and the legal weed industry. All of this is to say that in 2018, when Arzell took up the campaign to free his father, a sea change was already happening at the very top levels of government. Polis, this new guy, was a friend to legal weed. And so some of the first people Arzell went to for help were people in the cannabis industry, who had the governor's ear. One day he's like, man, I'm going to introduce you to the governor. And I was like, let's do it. <laughs> it's like a, an alliance that all the dispensary owners are part of. Mm-hmm. And so the governor was there. They were, you know, they were trying to get the governor to like, be a part of some bill. A friend brought Arzell to this meeting. So we met the governor. I, I was just like straight up like, yo, you, you, my dad's eligible for clemency. Let him out. <laughs> just, I didn't know what else to say. No, I said, you should let him out. It, it literally hit him like a bag of bricks. He was like, Ugh. and he, he had he stumbled for a second. He was like, man, we're uh, we're putting together some some laws and some things and uh, some bills. He's like, hopefully the, the, those things can help your dad. But then he kind of walked away underwhelming, to say the least. This was his big chance to plead his dad's case. And just like that, it was over before it began. So I was a little bit disappointed. But then like five minutes later, he came back and he was like, tell me your story again. So that's when I got to tell him my story and tell him how my, you know, what I was doing with my magazine, how I'm helping kids with brand new shoes. So he would make it to the governor's office after all. But Governor Polis wasn't the only one listening to Arzell's story that day. So um, literally, I'm talking to the governor, and this guy is just, like, staring at me the whole time. I'm like, you know, you can feel that. And so he just, you know, he walks up. He's he's like, you know, I just kind of feel like people like you need, you need a chance, and you deserve, you know, a chance. And I overheard, you know, the story about your dad locked up and, He's like, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, he's like, we got this program where we want to give people like you a million dollars in their own dispensary. And then so I'm like, you know, I'm listening. And he's like, you know, so, you know, maybe you could be that person. And I'm like, so you so you saying you're going to give me a million dollars in my own dispensary? And he's like, yeah. And so I'm like, so what's the catch? And he's like, nah, and we'll even like fight to get your dad out of prison. He's like, we'll put the steam behind it. He's not the only person, or they weren't the only people, 
You know, they were like, yo, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Nothing ever came to fruition. All of those promises sounded way too good to be true. Because they were. Even the governor couldn't just wave a pen and get his dad out. Arzell met with Governor Polis later on in his office. And Polis had some surprising news. In that meeting, he was like, man, like, your dad's eligible for clemency, but he never turned in a packet. But the thing is, he did turn it in three years earlier. After the break, what happened to Fred's paperwork? Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. Welcome back. Fred Harris had served almost 20 years of what was basically a life sentence by the time his son, Arzell Lewis, was able to mount an effort to get him out. This family felt like Colorado's legalization had left them behind. And they had lots of reasons to feel that way, like finding out that Fred's clemency paperwork had somehow been lost after he thought he had filed it in 2015. So, like, by the time in 2018 that you start this campaign to get him out, you've already filed to get out, <laughs> like, yeah, three years earlier. Three, three years earlier. And what but made, it was nowhere in the system. Nowhere. nowhere in the system. What made me suspicious or, or you know, made me aware of, of what was going on was because it was guys with, with violent crimes that got clemencies. Yeah. And I'm like... Where, where's my... <laughs> You're waiting for years. Yeah, yeah. he called me. Like he said, I called him and he said, man, you didn't turn in. I said, yes, I did. Thankfully, Fred had held on to a copy of his paperwork. And together, he and Arzell could prove that it had never properly been filed, that he was the victim of some kind of administrative malpractice. But even after doing all of that and threatening to sue, Fred's paperwork sat on the governor's desk for another year, while he was officially considered for clemency. And by this point, Arzell had already called in reinforcements. You know, we had some celebrities, all the people that was involved with our magazine, they all wrote letters um, oh, wow. to the governor. Uh, from like Don Cheeto to LeVar Ball, very powerful people in the community. But by 2020, he still didn't have an answer. I guess that's what strikes me is like, cannabis is legal. Your father's still in prison. You're spending years getting him out. Like, at some point, this shouldn't be this hard, right? Like, if cannabis is Man. legal, like, 
And we had we had talks. And I don't want to mention no names. But we had talks, and certain people were like, "Hey, you know, we gonna get him on the VIP list. Whenever they, whenever there's time to get people out, he gonna be on the VIP list." And it was like, "Damn, this must be a long ass club line because this has been two and yeah, a half years." Yeah, that now. must be some <laughs> VIP list. Wow. Arzell had plenty of promises, but his dad was still locked up. By this point, he had had it, with people making him promises they couldn't keep. When I heard that his dad had gotten 96 years for um, any kind of possession, who cares? I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, we have men out here, you know, white men that are accused of rape and murder that don't get that kind of time. In his campaign to free his dad, Arzell was introduced to something of a celebrity in Colorado's cannabis world, Wanda James. If you've not heard of her before, she's the first black person in America to own a legal cannabis business. She and her husband opened up the dispensary Simply Pure in Denver back in 2015, and they also own a cultivation facility and an edibles business. One big reason that Wanda got into the industry herself was because her brother spent time in a Texas prison for cannabis possession. She met him for the first time later in life, and learned to her horror that he had been picking cotton while he served his sentence. So quite frankly, I'm just at a point where I'm just really, really tired of our legal system. And I'm tired of people not doing anything to help people who are in negative situations. And with Arzell, he's somebody that is, he himself has done so many good things here in Colorado and has been such a positive force that, you know, the least we could do was to see if we could make a conversation happen or at least get this in front of the governors on his desk. And Wanda can do that because of who she is. Before she became a well-known name in legal weed, she was an Obama administration official with a career in politics. I have a 20-year relationship with Governor Polis. Um, We've been friends for a long time. I've worked on uh, one of his campaigns when he ran for for Congress. Um, So we know each other. She was able to get through where so many others were not. I mean, that wasn't hard for me to do. That wasn't a heavy lift for me to do. That's called proximity. And that's why we have to get more black and brown people to the point to where we have proximity to power and proximity to capital so that we're not forever begging people to give us a break. A lot of times what we're talking about is not having the ability to have proximity. And proximity is something that white men have at birth. In other words, they are one degree of separation from, you know, business people, from investors, from lawyers, from doctors. And unfortunately, in the black and brown communities, we very seldom have the opportunity to be one degree of separation from powerful people that can help change the circumstances of our lives. And I was just able to do that. She was able to do what NBA stars, actors and other big players in the cannabis industry could not. But Arzell didn't believe it at first. When we talked to Wanda, <laughs> this is crazy. Like she was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna get him out. I'm, I'm gonna get him out." And I was like, "Man, I don't want to hear that shit because everybody's like telling us one thing and doing another." And she was like, "Just be patient. Mm. Just give me till Christmas." It was like November when I met her. Fred kept calling and calling and calling, asking Arzell, "Had he heard any news?" He kept blowing me up. And I was just like, man, Wanda says you're going to be out. I'm going to resist the urge to make some kind of Santa metaphor here. 
But it is fair to say that the anticipation was building up to this particular Christmas until finally, just days before the holiday. Literally, like Christmas Eve, I get a call from the governor. I was like, I thought I was dreaming because it was like 7 something in the morning. <laughs> but then they whole staff called right after. So then I knew it was real. I was like, dang. But it really became real when his phone rang and Arzell glanced at the screen to see Fred calling from prison. I had been through a three-year fight, so I was like, once it was over, I told him, don't call me no more. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's hilarious. Fred was among the first group of people to be granted clemency by Governor Polis. On January 15, 2021, after more than two decades in prison, Fred was finally able to go home. He went into prison just before the turn of the 21st century and walked out well after Colorado had already legalized cannabis. To him, a great wrong was being righted. But to Arzell, they'd need to go one step further to truly reverse what his father went through. Why cannabis delivery? Oh, man, it's like, for me... Every day when I'm sitting there and I'm like, dang, he's locked up for this. I knew we had to get into the cannabis business. You know, I knew I was like, we not only I'm going to get him out, but I'm going to get him out and he's going to be an owner in the cannabis industry. So I think the delivery business, like, like I said, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's like I saw the positioning and I was like, yo, we can get into this. We can really run with this. So you're going into this delivery business. Have you ever owned a business before? Not at all. Is this your first time? A legal business. Marijuana, but no, not no business on this level. How's it feel? It's great. Yeah? And uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot from my son. And this guy's an awesome businessman, you know. Like, And, you know, he's schooling me a lot on what to say and how to say things, how to conduct myself around people. And the first dispensary they work with may be Simply Pure, which belongs to the woman who helped free Fred in the first place, Wanda James. I was happy to be able to help. And, you know, Arzell and Fred, they keep they say thank you to me a lot. And 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 I'm and I'm appreciative, you know, for their thanks, because I think that they're lovely and they're family to me now. So but what I did doesn't deserve thanks. I'm fighting for us here. You know, I am fighting for every black person out there. I'm fighting for every brown person out there. And so I don't want to use the word obligated because that takes on a different connotation from how I felt about it. I mean, I wanted to do it, but, you know, maybe it is obligated. You know, we're obligated to help each other. Obligated because you can't expect the law to do it. Now, for what it's worth, Colorado lawmakers, including cannabis friendly Governor Polis, have tried to address the equity issue in recent years. And cannabis delivery is supposed to be one way of doing it. Social equity applicants will get exclusive first dibs on delivery licenses for six years, which could be huge since Denver is home to a third of the state's cannabis industry. But Wanda has been around this block a long time, and she is skeptical about whether or not these laws will really turn things around in Colorado. 
I mean, we're starting 10 years late after there is already an explosion of cannabis businesses. Um, and now we're trying to cut out a little teeny weeny space for black and brown people to have some uh, ownership in the industries. And unfortunately, white men have come in and taken over cannabis and are controlling cannabis right now to the point to where there's really very little that we're going to be able to do to ever find equity in this industry. I mean, that's really bleak. Like, you really feel that way? There's not there's there's not much left to do. You tell me how it's going to happen. So Colorado has 717 dispensaries. If you want a dispensary right now, you can go out and you can buy one. You want to buy mine from me? Mine's five million dollars. You got five million? Definitely not. (laughs) Okay, and that's just for one. So now the issue with my one dispensary, the reason why we're still profitable and why we're making it is because we're somewhat celebrities in this in this in this space. So a lot of people come to my dispensary. So I don't have to. I don't have to compete in the same way that other folks have to compete, right? But if you were to come into this industry today or some other black kid comes in, if you found the $5 million to buy one dispensary, um, man, these guys that own 80 dispensaries that own 90 dispensaries, they're gonna price you out pretty quick, right? This is kind of what Wanda means when she says we're obligated to fight for each other. She looks around at the industry she works in and doesn't see the government coming to anyone's aid. So she and other people of color in the space have to look to each other to build what they need, because all they have is each other. Arzell and Fred are trying to do the same by working to get more people out of prison and back on their feet. You know, his whole whole thing is we got to get somebody else out and some other people out that are locked up for cannabis, nonviolent crimes. And when we open our shoe release shoe store, you know, we can start hiring people like that that was locked up for cannabis and giving them jobs. And, you know, in due time, even cats like that, we can give them, a, you know, a job with Duber Express. Duber Express is their cannabis delivery business, and it's opening in Denver this summer. Legalization is still this big work in progress almost 10 years after Colorado legalized in 2012. You know that saying, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs? Well, Arzell and Fred are the eggs in this omelet. And depending on your point of view, that's how laws are supposed to work. Legalization is an experiment, right? You've heard us frame it that way on this show before. But now, I kind of regret it because Well, Wanda James actually put it way better than I could. And I'm like, excuse me, this isn't a fucking experiment. This is people's lives that we're talking about that are getting arrested every day. To people like Fred and Arzell, it isn't an experiment. It's yet another mechanism for creating permanent inequality. Another layer of exclusion on top of the well-documented injustices of the drug war. When voters agreed to take the legalization leap in 2012, the question didn't address criminal justice other than to decriminalize weed itself. And that foundational omission is what would create this stunning disparity that you see in Colorado's legal weed market today. It would create the whole situation that Fred and thousands of others found themselves in, waiting for progress to catch up with them, running out the clock on their lives their families' lives. Because, quite plainly, if criminal justice reform wasn't baked in from the beginning, this whole legalization thing was always doomed to be unequal. 
And it was always going to be people like Fred and Arzell who paid the price for that, not the wealthy captains of the cannabis industry who have been, by now, handsomely paid out. So when states like California, Illinois, or Massachusetts legalized after Colorado, all of them, at bare minimum, promised to address those still serving cannabis sentences and or those still carrying around criminal records related to cannabis. And this is why it took Colorado almost a decade after legalizing to consider those people in any way. Arzell and Fred, their story is a cautionary one. And Arzell, being as graceful as he is, won't say it, but I will. Not everyone has that kind of time. A lot of people that I grew up with that had their dads, a lot of their dads died now. You know, so it's like, it's never too late. Next time, everyone and their grandma has been talking about psychedelics, mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca. The medicinal potential of all of them is tantalizing for patients and corporations alike. But almost all of them come from indigenous cultures, ancient traditions that regard these not as drugs, but as sacred medicines. I am a baby, right? And... These medicines are my elders, and my job is to be quiet and listen to the what wisdom that they have to share. On the next episode of On Something, the overwhelming popularity and whiteness of psychedelics and the few people who are trying to change that. On Something is a labor of love. This episode was written and reported by me, Anne-Marie Awad, with additional reporting from Alan Tellis and Rebecca Romberg. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Today's episode was produced by Luis Antonio Perez and Rebecca Romberg. Our editor is Dennis Funk. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped make this episode in the show notes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Legalize it. Da, 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 da. Okay, I remember why we're retracking this now. It's my first day back. You're, I, you're, I, I don't even know how to judge if it's good. <laughs>